<laughs> Thank you very much. I'm particularly grateful because uh, it sounded like what Father Martin said in his sermon was what I wanted to say, so he's got it covered, and we'll just go through it a second time here. Let's begin with a prayer. Together, you can see on the screen. If you can see the screen, you can pray along. Dear Father, thank you so much for giving us one another. Thank you, too, for giving us these sessions on grace. Help us to engage meaningfully with you as we look at grace and prayer. Open our hearts to the Holy Spirit so that we can be present, open, and awake to all that you have given us. We come to you as needy children, adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus, your Son, trusting you, our gracious Father. Amen. Here's a summary of what I'm about to say. The grace of prayer is the inflowing and outflowing of the love of God experienced in any and every part of the believer's being, body, soul, and spirit. The grace of prayer involves doing nothing, watching God do the doing, watching your inner being moved upon by infinite love. To watch God move and to watch yourself being moved upon involves understanding that you are two and not one. If we think we are only one, we may be praying out of our ego, also called the old man, the flesh, and the false self. Let's not let that bother us too much, but let's allow God to reveal our true self. We know our God is compassionate beyond all description, which is to say that grace is flowing from him with unimaginable generosity. This old self Paul taught us about is associated with the natural man and could be defined as our ordinary sense of self or the way we think we are. It is this persistently self-centered self that shrouds the inner self and is dissolving in God's grace. Many other Christian teachers agree that becoming aware of the two selves opens the door to a deeper awareness of God in prayer. St. Augustine wrote, Lord grant that we, that Lord grant that I may know myself and that I may know thee. Thomas Akempis wrote, a humble self-knowledge is a surer way to God than a search after deep learning. John Calvin, in the opening words of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, wrote, There is no deep knowing of God without deep knowing of self, and no deep knowing of self without deep knowing of God. Thomas Merton said this, There is only one problem 
on which all my existence, my peace, and my happiness depend, to discover myself in discovering God. If I find him, I will find myself. And if I find my true self, I will find him. Jesus said it too. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He made clear that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone, expressing the truth that until the ego, that is the shell around the germ of the seed, rots away, there is no growth. In that stasis, we are alone in our made-up world. Once the invented person is unmasked, Intimacy with God and others becomes possible. The old self that needs a burial to make room for the new birth is the part of us still living under the law. But oh, when that shadow self realizes that your true self is wise to its unreality, it begins to fight for its life. We can become more aware of that struggle as we enter into prayer. The new self is completely identified with the risen Christ himself. He is our true self, and God is constantly revealing that Christ is the only reality and the only source of intimacy in our relationship with God. Intimacy is, of course, nothing other than God's love. Enjoying intimacy with God is the grace of prayer. Perhaps because we cannot see God directly with our eyes, all of us tend to default to talking at God in our prayer. And we become so conditioned to this kind of discursive prayer that we don't dare think that, we could, that simply enjoying the presence of God in silence is even possible. But the grace of prayer helps us to realize that we are free from reward-based performances to impress God. We can let our cherished little song and dance be damned. Instead, we relax into the love of God that opens to us new ways of thinking that he wants us to think and new ways of acting that he wants us to act. First, we attempt to execute our own ego and find that that is like trying to nail ourselves to a cross. We are not up to it. And so we turn it over to God and watch the coffin cover close on the whining and resentful self. And then we wait for the work of God to take root and bring forth fruit. The seed that has fallen to the ground and died, our ego, our flesh, our old man, our false self, is buried with all its loneliness. We could take a moment 
of silence and just uh, respond to what I just said. If you have some thoughts, some question come to your mind, we could talk about it. Okay, I'll wait for the second round then. Oh, yeah. So, false self, we can imagine kind of a reckless life of wild living. That could be the false self. Could you talk a little bit about the risks of the religious false self? Because there's one of those, isn't there, as well? I, I, that's on the agenda. Oh, it's on the agenda. You foresaw what I was about to say. Amazing. Yes. I look forward to it. I look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mary. I think I see what you're asking. The um, mysterious thing is that the true self and the false self living in the same body and soul um, are, it's terminology, but it's, uh, the reality is bigger than that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So that we say false self, we say shadow self, we say, the other self, it sounds like it's totally associated with our evil, and in many ways it is because it's so self-centered that we can't see Christ who is the underlying self, the real self in us. Because he's in us, he is our true self. He is, right, yeah, that's the point, right, exactly. Thanks for asking, Mary. Yes? Yeah. But uh, it's hard for me to distinguish which is evil, <laughs> which is God meeting me in that weakness. Ah, yes. It's and hard I, for all of us. I think that to me is the question that you're really posing is which is, which is ego and which is God using that weakness. Can I tell you a little story? Uh, uh, lately, my wife and I have been playing ping pong, and my wife just loves it. <laughs> and uh, so, <laughs> and and he, so, I've got this nasty spin, and I, you know, of course, I was using it so I could slaughter her in the game. <laughs> and and it was a little bit upsetting, and so she said, uh, that's not fair. And so, instead of going along with all of this, I got on my high horse internally, and I started lobbing little serves to her. And I could see myself doing that. And I was like, oh my goodness. Inside, I'm saying, why are you being such a jerk about this? Can't you just enjoy the game with her? <laughs> that looking, I think, at my 
my false self, my ego, you know, and being able to see for just a moment and regret it. But I couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> so it's only the Lord that closes the coffin. <laughs> to illustrate what this death of self is like, let me tell you a story I learned from James Finley a teacher of contemplative prayer and a psychotherapist. During his doctoral studies, he was assigned to the VA hospital, a VA hospital which included a program for alcohol addiction. In order to get into the program, it was necessary to pass a rite of initiation that was devised by the members of the program. Dr. Finley was given special permission to observe the event. The candidate, who suffered from severe alcoholism such that he was wandering the streets with the DTs, was ushered into a large room, empty except for a lone chair in the middle of the room where he was seated. And the candidate knew he had to pass the initiation in order to become part of the program. Seated along the walls of the room were the members of the program with their heads down. One of the members, eyes looking at the floor like the rest of them, shouted out to the candidate, What do you love the most? The question echoed through the room, and the candidate fumbled for words and finally answered, my, uh, my wife. And everyone in the room, without looking up, responded with a resounding, Bull crap! Only in soldier language, but uh, <laughs> we're in church after all. Then the question was repeated, what do you love the most? And again the candidate hesitated and responded with a quavering voice, my children. And again the response came, bull crap! And finally, after several tries, with the same response, the candidate blurted out, alcohol. Immediately everyone in the room stood to their feet and gave the alcoholic a long and thunderous applause. Then the members lined up in complete silence and one by one they hugged the candidate and held him close while tears ran down his cheeks. Let's look at what was happening here. First of all, the alcoholic was alone. In his aloneness, his aloneness was made more emphatic by his position in the room and by the lack of any eye contact with those who were with him. This is the aloneness that comes from all of our distorted effect, disordered affections, all of our wayward desires that lead us into choices that isolate us rather than connect us to God and others. The choices harden into addictions. And as you know, alcoholism is only one example. We all suffer from more mundane and socially acceptable addictions that keep us at arm's length from God and others and ourselves. We, to may, I'll mention a few of our addictions. Our work, our study, 
reading, writing, making art, building projects, traveling, buying, selling, making money, internet sex, gambling, preaching the gospel, being the best missionary ever and or evangelizing and our devotional habits. Any desires and behaviors that interfere with a humble, open, and receptive love relationship with our God and those around us in the terminology of Ignatius Loyola are disordered desires. These motivations, thoughts, and actions flowing from disordered desires are the source of aloneness in which all of us are alone together. Secondly, the alcoholic standing there with tears running down his face was vulnerable, meaning he was willing to risk his customary view of himself to honestly admit his essential poverty. For a moment, he had to drop the layers of rationalization and all the fancy footwork that alcoholics are known for he had to come face to face with himself and experience the painful reality of his condition. In this admission of weakness, he opened the door to love and received the reward of the invincibility of those who have lost everything at the foot of the cross. In this moment, the, alcohol, the alcoholic was silent and in his stillness, he was expressing true wisdom. His defenses crumbled to the ground like walls of mud. His violent self-protection was reduced to the hot air and emptiness that everyone else knew it was all along. And in this moment, the alcoholic was childlike. And in that way, assumed the stature of one who has gained maturity in the paradoxical ways of Christ. I'll open it up again to see if any... Yes, Tim. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> How does that fit in here? 
Uh, this, is, this is a mystery that we will explore together for the rest of our lives, Tim. Mm Is your name Monica? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a nice answer that was. That was, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yes. In a way, I would love to have a conversation directly. But what Tim is expressing is also, is also uh, something that I've really struggled with, particularly in the last few years. And I recognize that um, things in my, with my responsibilities at work were causing me to become numb in ways that was robbing me of my relationship with God, with my humanity, with my ability to connect with others. So I'm very aware of what you're talking about, but I feel it. Um, I don't have a great answer for what makes it better or how to do it or how to um, I I think that um, one of the things though that I would say is you reminded me a little bit of C.S. Lewis's talk about humility what humility, true humility is because true humility isn't necessarily where you, you, you deny your own ability. It's the true humility is to see anything that's happening that is excellent and being able to affirm it in its excellence, even if it's in you. Hmm. So, like some of the things you would say, like, I need mean, some kind of self-confidence to do, that comes in part from your experience doing it and knowing you do it well. And if you have true humility, should be able to say, you know what, I do that really well. Because huh. that's true, that's what it means to be able to Yeah. You can also acknowledge that that ability comes from Christ, right? So it's not, it's not necessarily just about yourself, but yes. um, I, I think at least one of the things is we have to we have to have a better, deeper understanding of humility than sort of maybe what lingers in the culture. That makes us separate things out Thank you very much, David. That's, now that Tim feels better, we can move on. <laughs> so in China. Uh, 
Yeah. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Kathy. This is good stuff. Keeps me from having to go back to the paper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and back to Martin's sermon this morning. Yeah, the vocation, the call. Can I throw in one thing for the quantitative thing? Um, my men who are here, uh, and I do it for every, every single thing that's been said so far. Um, Tim Keller, who I regard as a guy who knows a lot about the gospel, like if I had a question about the gospel and he was around, I would ask him. <laughs> and if he answered my question, I would like, give a lot of weight to his answer, like maybe 80%. <laughs> Tim Keller once said in public that he figures he understands about 7% of the gospel. And that's not, um, like, the truth will set you free, right? That's not a statement. He's not saying, I understand less of the gospel than other people. He's just saying, I understand enough about the gospel to know that I don't understand very much about the gospel, and I'm not likely to between now and the time I die. Um, I think he has, he has a pretty good sense of his giftedness and his effectiveness and his the fact that he's called and he's been, you know, more or less obedient, macro style to the call. And really useful to people. But he doesn't confuse that with understanding the gospel. He doesn't confuse his efficacy with like comprehensive competence. Yeah. That's all. Thank you. And one more. <laughs>
that you need. And so I think that is a really humbling understanding of, like, we all have gifts. We all have something to bring, but that means everybody has a gift. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I was just distracted for a moment here because I'm trying to figure out what to chuck, you know. <laughs> All right. So I think I was on page six, but I'm going to jump over. The next whole section is about Gigo's Ladder, which... Uh, uh, came up this morning in the gospel. It's the last few words, and Christ becomes the ladder. But uh, that two pages will go, and uh, we'll deal with them in about three months. I think is it four months? May comes around, and I'm back up here, and then I get to do it again. So uh, that was just a preview. <laughs> so the grace of prayer is one with the grace of intimacy with God, which is knowing, which is a knowing that is beyond ordinary speech. It depends, it demands that we hear the unhearable and listen to the unsayable. It is deeper than what, we, what can be spoken and it emerges out of silence and returns to silence. There are pictures to go with it, but um, I think I got all messed up here. And Besides, the pictures aren't turning out very well over there. The, the only borders it knows are the laws of the universe as expressed in the beginning of Psalm 19. When we accept this, we begin to realize the life of God all around us and deep within us. The sun rises and sets as a direct consequence of our God-given praise. But our praise is a direct consequence of the birth of the word in the stillness of our souls. I have a young friend who told me this story. We're skipping over in the pictures here all the stuff that... Um, we missed, and uh, coming to the rising of the sun, which we just covered, and now we are at the story. Okay. I have a young friend who told me this story. When she was a child, she would imagine Jesus sitting under a tree waiting for her. She would go to him, and when she approached, he got up, and they would run to each other. How great their joy when he would catch her up in his arms and swing her round and round. My friend went on to say that as a child, she didn't realize that this was prayer. Perhaps she had been taught that prayer was limited to asking for things. The grace of prayer is sincere and childlike trust that God is always there waiting for you under a nearby tree. 
We read in Isaiah, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Most of us would have to say, this is me, Lord. I am the one who would have none of it. Teach me to live in quietness and trust. Let me try to express the feelings of God for each one of us. Most of what I have written here is a paraphrase from the scriptures. The Lord says, watch for me. Wait for me. Turn to me. Come to me. I will meet you in a quiet place and tell you of my love for you. I want you to know that because I love you, I have waited for you to come and sit with me, to leave your worries behind, to listen to me, and let me listen to you as you share your hurts and disappointments. As a mother gazes upon her child pouring out her soul in love, I am gazing upon you. Don't be afraid. Come close and sit down here next to me in the quiet of the morning, in the silence of the night. We will be alone together and I will show you how much I love you. Yes, I forgive you for turning your back on me so often. I have forgotten about your wanting to ignore me and your days of pretending I don't exist. That's all behind us now. Yes, you're hiding from me in books and shopping and making more money and worrying about how you might not be smart enough or pretty enough or good enough. I've dealt with all that. I really think you are just right, just the way you are, the way I made you. Now put your hand in mine. Thank you for coming to me. There is no better way we could spend this time than to just sit a while together with no other agenda. What a delight you are to me. Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room and find the Father in a private place. When you pray, close the door. Let it be a time of focusing on the life of God dwelling in you. And then wait and let the presence of the Father who is always with you emerge from within. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know you are flowing with the grace of prayer when you stop saying your prayers. And prayer becomes a mode of being. When God has become an excuse for ignoring the divinity of all that you are experiencing, throw away all you have learned about God.
and seek him in the mystery of the concrete reality of the present moment. If God really mattered to us, we should ask our fellow sailors to toss us overboard so the great fish of love that God has prepared will swallow us alive. This is the grace of prayer. Let yourself be loved. I guess we have a minute or so to... Yeah. Maybe one of the ways to address this dilemma of the necessary work that we do is pointing out in one another the way we see Christ. And a lot of you might not know many of the images that you just saw were made by Jim himself. They're beautiful when you see them in the original. And so I want to thank you for that and for this. And I want to simply ask, I hope this isn't too forward, but for anyone who does not want to wait until the end, until May, do you do spiritual direction? Do you have, can we set up an appointment with you personally if we wanted to? I... I do do spiritual direction, and I'm looking forward to the day that I can um, open it up to the church here. I'm afraid to open it up too early because I still have a full-time job. And if, you know, so probably in May I'll say more about that. But thank you very much for mentioning that because I hope in the future to sit down with many of you and take time with you and listen to you. Spiritual direction is being a professional listener. So thank you. Yes, where did that hand come? There, Monica, hi. thing that comes to mind is um, Jesus in the temple, 12 years old, and he has the wisdom to know the impossible questions to ask. And uh, maybe that comes to mind because there's a lot of wisdom in your question. You're welcome. Have a cup of coffee.